I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You can't say the world hasn't been warned. Our own human activities have already altered over 97% of the ecosystems worldwide. Extinction is a very chilling word. Once something is gone, it is gone forever. The Amazon rainforest may be nearing a point of no return. Canada is the second largest country in the world when it comes to land, and we have a huge responsibility. That is a responsibility to protect, from the tiniest creatures to the largest unspoiled land masses, say those who watch species and wilderness disappear. Tied fundamentally to all of this is a way to protect Earth's biggest predator, humans, at the same time. Because by lifting up and restoring the world's biodiversity, people also rehabilitate the planet, expanding places where carbon can be stored naturally and preventing the release of carbon emissions in places that might otherwise be mined or developed. It's the wonder of nature that not only enthralls, it works hard to keep things in balance. This week we go inside high-level talks in Montreal and to remote communities that have one thing in common, an urgent mission to give back to the natural world all that humanity has gained from it. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. This important conference brings the world to Canada to focus on the future of humanity's relationship with nature, our life support system. We are waging a war on nature. Ecosystems have become placings of profit, Human activities are laying waste to unthriving forests, jungles, farmland, oceans, rivers, seas and lakes. Our land, water and air are poisoned by chemicals and pesticides and choked with plastics. The addiction to fossil fuels has thrown our climate into chaos. Unsustainable production and monstrous consumption habits are degrading our world and uh, humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction with a million species at risk of disappearing forever. Now, the language of war isn't normally applied to nature, but the UN Secretary General seems to want to rally some troops to fight for those who cannot speak for themselves, the wild creatures and all else that also live in our world. Antonio Guterres came to the opening of a global conference in Montreal focused on that fight. It has the same kind of confusing acronym as the recent meetings in Egypt. It's called COP. That's for Conference of the Parties, which really just means a gathering of nations. Guterres called for an end to that war at the COP meetings in Montreal, and he called for what he calls a peace pact with nature, a pact that he hopes can come out of this conference. But things began less than peacefully. Le Canada, c'est l'Atlantique. Et la vallée du Saint-Laurent. 
When he took the podium, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was interrupted. With their magnificent snow-capped peaks. The Arctic is the north. Delegates looked on as protesters, including members of the Klaaman Nation on the West Coast, called out colonialism, singing Canada is on native land. And there have also been protests on the streets of Montreal. Amidst all the pressure and the politics, there are scientists, government ministers and negotiators working to get an agreement, that so-called peace pact with nature. If you want to get technical, its official name is the Global Biodiversity Framework. My name is Dr. Katie Millett. I am a science officer at GEOBON, and that stands for the Group on Earth Observations, Biodiversity Observation Network. Katie Millett is at the conference to observe and give advice during the negotiations. So far, there's a lot of disagreement over terms in the draft text, and previous agreements have failed to halt the degradation of nature. Millett says among scientists like herself, the mood is low and momentum is slow. We're all um, unified in this vision that we want to live in harmony with nature, but the specifics of how we're going to do it and who's going to be involved is divided. But Millette is optimistic the agreement will include steps to track the promises nations make. And like a true scientist, she says it's all about measuring the results. In the past, parties were able to report qualitative metrics, things that were not comparable between years, things that were not comparable between parties. So it was impossible to see on a global scale if we're all moving together in the right or wrong direction, or even to see who's doing well in one year compared to another. What is positive about this framework is that there is more consensus on what parties have to report on. Yeah, this might all sound a little technical, but this agreement could have real consequences for the estimated one million plant and animal species threatened with extinction and for the future of the climate. That's because, as Millet says, biodiversity and climate are intricately linked. Climate change and the biodiversity decline are basically two sides of the same coin. So climate change is one of the main drivers of biodiversity loss. And so when we have increasing pressures coming from climate change, our ecosystems themselves, like forests and oceans, their ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions and protect us and the planet against extreme weather events is being undermined. It connects with climate change solutions because if we can accelerate our climate change solutions, then we can address the biodiversity crisis. So yes, lots at stake in Montreal, but Millette says a solution is within reach. Um, Seeing people collaborating, there are people, people are listening. I do believe that we're all truly, you know, want to advert this crisis. And I, I know that it's in us to do it. And I've seen what we did during COVID. We're able to mobilize so many resources so quickly on a global scale. And I think if we can take that into the biodiversity crisis, I think it's definitely within our grasp.
Now, as delegates from around the world gather in Montreal, CBC's Inayat Singh has been looking into Canada's own conservation targets and why Indigenous communities could be key to Ottawa keeping its promises. Hi, Inayat. Hello. You've been looking into something called Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas, which sounds a bit jargony, but (laughs) those are in the spotlight during the conference. Tell me what those are exactly. You're right. Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas, or IPCAs, are getting a lot of attention in Montreal. In fact, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a funding announcement on day one of the conference. Canada will provide up to $800 million to support four major Indigenous-led conservation projects across the country, covering almost a million square kilometres. So IPCAs are places where indigenous communities lead the conservation and the protection of the biodiversity and ecosystems. They can consist of parks or other conservation areas, and federal, provincial, and territorial governments will kick in funding. So they have a say, but it's really the indigenous community that takes the lead. And so tell me what that looks like in terms of what is allowed and what isn't. Well, there's no one-size-fits-all. It's really up to the Indigenous community to decide best according to its traditional knowledge on how best to manage the area. So human activity won't be completely banned. You know, things like ecotourism will still be allowed, but in a sustainable way. But in general, that means banning, mining, and logging to protect the biodiversity and ecosystems of the area. And you've been looking at Indigenous-led conservation projects across Canada. Tell me where you started. Well, I think that the Saisi Dene people in northwest Manitoba are the perfect example of what this conservation means. Uh, The Saisi Dene, along with neighboring Dene, Cree, and Inuit groups, are trying to establish an IPCA uh, to protect a vast swath of northwestern Manitoba. And what is the significance of the Seal River watershed? I've never even heard of it. The Seal River watershed is 50,000 square kilometers, so that's about the size of Nova Scotia, of a virtually untouched wilderness in northwestern Manitoba. The Seal River is one of the last major rivers of Manitoba that doesn't have any dams on it. There are no roads leading to the area. The only people uh, who live here are the Saisi Dene, just, just a few hundred people in the community there. And the landscape is, uh, you know, tundra, wetlands, a beautiful forest, and these giant lakes that are teeming with fish. In terms of animals, you'll see caribou. It's, it's on the caribou migration route. You'll also see polar bears, moose, seals, and beluga whales in Hudson's Bay. So it's really a, a very pristine uh, location. Uh, here's Stephanie Tarasi. She's the executive director of the Seal River Watershed Alliance. It is 99.97% pristine. So the watershed is actually uh, fully intact. Uh, There are no disturbances, no uh, industrial development in the watershed whatsoever. And for those reasons, because of how remote we are, we are a little piece of heaven in the world that is uh, a little bit uh, unnoticed. And we kind of like it that way. But we know that there's not a lot of places in the world that exist like this anymore. So we're trying really hard to continue to protect it. 
And most importantly, what needs to be protected there is the 1.7 billion tons of carbon that's stored in the soils and forests. You know, that's one of the most carbon-rich areas in Canada. And keeping that carbon from escaping into the atmosphere due to mining or other disruption is really key in the fight against climate change. I love that that phrase, a little piece of heaven in a world that's a little bit unnoticed. It, it really makes me want to go there. And obviously it has this big benefit for the climate too, but tell me how it would benefit the community. It represents jobs for the community. The protected area would come with funding, and that funding would create jobs in conservation work and also in developing ecotourism. So these are good quality jobs for community members. Here's Stephanie Tarasi again. I think that utilizing our first peoples to do this work is the right way to go about creating protected spaces Uh, utilizing the knowledge of our elders and our community members and our land users, that knowledge that they carry is older than universities. It's been here since before Canada was created, before the Europeans came here. You know, this knowledge is ancient knowledge. And before, our peoples weren't looked to for that knowledge and for that support. So now that's what's different this time around, is that peoples are starting to look to our our community members to ask for their opinions, to ask if we're doing this the right way and ask to support them in this way, right? So that's what's really different about this for us is that being able to have an opportunity to stand and tell the world what's important to us for our reasons and to protect it for ourselves, by ourselves is something that hasn't been done before. That's what's different this time around. All right, what, what does she mean by that phrase, this time around? Well, let's back up and look a bit at the history here. Because, you know, the Saisi Dene have really suffered in the past in the name of environmentalism. So the Saisi Dene are traditionally a nomadic people, a caribou hunting people who lived in northwestern Manitoba and the southern parts of Nunavut. And they lived off of the land. They caught the plentiful fish. They hunted caribou. And by the 19th century, some of them were also working as trappers to sell furs to the Hudson's Bay Company. But in 1956, the Manitoba and federal governments decided that the caribou population was declining. This was based on really flimsy evidence that was later disproved. And they blamed the Saisi Dene for it, for overhunting, even though the Saisi Dene had lived there sustainably for centuries before Europeans ever arrived. The whole community was bundled onto a plane and sent to live outside Churchill. But there, they weren't given any homes. They weren't even given utilities like water and electricity. um, And their livelihood was taken away from them. The community really suffered in this forced relocation. They did not have the skills and the the tools to build a new life in, in an urban setting. And problems like alcoholism, poverty, racism set in. Half the community actually died during this relocation. Here's Eva Yassi, who is a survivor. She spoke to the CBC in 2016 about what life was like during the relocation. People died trying to get home from town, like when they were drunk and getting hit by a vehicle and freezing. They call it parish. A lot of people perish from here. Oh, this sounds like such a tragedy, and unfortunately it's not the only example of the effects on Indigenous people of being removed from their land. But but now apparently the Saisi Dene are back on their territory? 
Yes, in 1973, they uh, relocated back to their homelands. In fact, they left on foot and they settled around Tadouli Lake, which is about 250 kilometers west of Churchill. And over there, life returned to the traditional ways. I actually found the CBC television story from 1978, um, and it featured the sole police constable in the community who actually has nothing much to do because um, life is so calm there. Bush life is free of alcohol. That means Isaac Tong, the only police constable here, has time to spare. There's hardly any trouble here, and uh, there's really nothing much to do around here because there's hardly any fighting things like that. Eh? But the story goes on to mention that the young people in the community were still struggling. There was a lack of education and employment opportunities. So you know, and I listening to that whole story of what happened to them being torn from their land, walking back to it, still struggling with some opportunities. That sounds like it deserves a, another story in and of itself. But right now, we're talking about the Seal River watershed as a potential conservation area and whether it could open up opportunities for the community. Is that what we're looking at? Exactly, and it's already opening up opportunities. So the federal government has given the Seal River watershed three point two million dollars, and they are already using it to train community members to work as indigenous guardians and be out there, manage the land, and do research on it. I think the story of the Saisi Dene is really incredible. It really encapsulates everything we're talking about. Here's a community that really suffered in the name of mistaken environmental concerns, and not only have they survived, they've come back to their land and come back to their traditional ways of life, but they're also trying to show Canada and the rest of the world how to do conservation right. All right, so we've looked at this particular community and and what it's doing. Let's zoom out a bit. How does this kind of indigenous-led conservation play into Canada's overall conservation targets? Canada has some really ambitious targets over here.、Um, so Canada's goals are to conserve 25% of its lands and oceans by 2025, and 30% by 2030. But we are only at about 14% right now. Uh oh, that sounds like there is a really long way to go, and I. A really long way to go because it's essentially a doubling of all the area we have protected over the past century. So that's all the area in all these iconic national parks, conservation areas, provincial parks. We have to double it in just eight years. And the way Ottawa plans to get there is through these indigenous-led initiatives like Seal River Watershed. James Snyder is the vice president of science and innovation at World Wildlife Fund Canada, which has recently done a report highlighting the importance of these IPCAs in meeting Canada's goals. So I think there's tremendous momentum. Canada has, is taking a leadership role, and it's through the lens of indigenous-led conservation、um, or conservation more broadly that supports indigenous rights and objectives. That is the means by we get to those important targets. So, how is this different from how conservation was done in the past in this country? This is really a sea change from how conservation has been done in the past. You know, if you look at some of our iconic parks,、um, just take Banff National Park, which is Canada's oldest park. These places were created by excluding and, in some cases, actively removing Indigenous people who live there. Now, Laura, have you been to the West Coast Trail or Tofino? I have been to Tofino. I've I've wanted to hike the West Coast Trail for a very long time, and I haven't been able to do it. Have you gone there? 
Yeah, I've done the West Coast Trail and it's fascinating because it's part of the Pacific Rim National Park Reserve. Um, so it's a national park, but it's run in collaboration from the multiple First Nations who have their territory in the park. Parks Canada collaborates with the First Nations in running the park. And there are several other examples, but Indigenous-led conservation in general um, is still not that common in Canada. This is Kyla Judge, uh, a counsellor at Shawanaga First Nation in Ontario. Uh, they're trying to uh, get an IPCA for Shawanaga Island, which is part of their traditional territory around Georgian Bay. It really reinforces the notion that we've always been caretakers of the land and that we're uh, being supported in our continual work to do so. This is part of our roles and responsibilities as Anishinaabe people, as Indigenous people, to care for the lands and the waters. And so for us, this IPCA designation just further amplifies and exemplifies the work that has been done for generations prior to the work that we're doing today. All right. So the federal government is helping to fund the proposals. Ottawa's promised to protect 30 percent of the land and seas within the next get decade. It seems like there's agreement. It seems like there's urgency. So is there anything holding it back? So what's actually interesting is that Canada can meet its conservation goals by all the proposals that are already on the table. So according to a report from the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, uh, Canada can reach about 29% of conservation of its land by 2030, uh, just through the Indigenous-led proposals that are already on the table. Okay, that sounds easy. Just, you know, sign off and go ahead. What's, what, can, can that happen? Well, the report does call out several provinces and territories for dragging their feet. So, you know, provinces have to sign off on these protected spaces before they are established to bar development there. And the report says that several provinces don't have conservation targets of their own, for example, or there isn't enough political will. This is Alison Woodley, the Senior Strategic Advisor at the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. We have enormous uh, leadership on the ground from Indigenous peoples who are uh, identifying areas for protection across the country. But we have this blockage in terms of provinces and territories who are not stepping up um, in most cases to actually adopt and, and embrace these ambitious targets and support Indigenous-led conservation. Now, of course, there are economic concerns with establishing these parks. They would uh, limit mining and logging activity and other economic activity. And new protected spaces also need new funding to manage them. So, and I, we've heard about these two proposed protected areas and some of the challenges. I'm wondering, though, if you spoke to any communities that have managed to get the land officially protected. Yeah, there are examples of success here. So the Thaidene Nene National Park Reserve in the Northwest Territories is on the eastern arm of the Great Slave Lake. And it was established in 2019. It's actually Canada's newest national park. And you featured it on your program a few years ago. We did indeed. Yeah, and it's it's a really great example of what we're talking about. The park is uh, administered by the Litske Dene First Nation in collaboration with the Canadian and territorial government, but they really lead conservation over there. I spoke with Stephen Nita, who was the chief negotiator for the Litske Dene First Nation uh, while this park was being established. Indigenous nations uh, that are advancing their own protected conserved areas really have to drive their agenda. They have to own what they want to create. So that sounds like some good advice for other other places trying to consider this sort of thing. But what does he mean by it? 
Well, what he means is that it's not as simple as just picking a spot and asking for it to be protected. Communities have to have a really strong, clear, specific vision of why they're protecting the space and how they're going to use it. So for Taiden Inene, for example, the vision includes creating jobs for community members uh, who will manage the space, who will build new infrastructure for visitors, and who will conduct research on how climate change is affecting the environment. Uh, like the Seal River watershed, the Taiden Inene National Park also protects a lot of carbon-rich ecosystems. And Taiden Inene has really become a great example to follow. In 2020, they won a really prestigious award from the UN Development Program for establishing the park. And so it's something that will be followed by a lot of indigenous communities across the country who are trying to build something similar. And it's interesting that, that it's, it's, it's also protecting so much carbon-rich forest and soil. Um, and it's a good example for others. And it brings us right back around to this idea that not only are you protecting biodiversity, you're also protecting the climate by being able to store all that much carbon. It's been a, a great, great conversation with you and I. It's so interesting. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. The sound of a Wilson's snipe, just one of the birds in this avian chorus caught on a remote recorder in Thaidene Nene Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area. That's what Inayat was just telling us about. This is a small audio snapshot of a monitoring program in place across the Northwest Territories. As the climate changes rapidly in the north, sounds like these are another part of the story of protecting biodiversity. The north is always kind of put on this pedestal as being intact and being, you know, some of the last remnants of intact habitat, which is true, but we don't know much about what is out there. <laughs> so. That's scientist Claudia Haas speaking. She's a PhD student at Wilfrid Laurier University and she works remotely in Yellowknife. Haas is part of a larger team that's trying to paint a picture of all the critters that live and move through the Northwest Territories. It's a collaboration between scientists, territorial, federal, and First Nation governments and communities. They're placing cameras and audio recorders in hard-to-reach places. And the goal is to snoop on what's out there to create what Haas calls a baseline 
for how these wild animals are faring. The fact that we've got these units and we can tell a story for this remote place that like almost nobody will visit. We get this little remote kind of intimate snapshot into this place. And so you have snippets of audio and you have photos. Every time the camera gets triggered, it takes three photos. So if you put all these photos in sequence, you can almost watch the animals move. And watching the animals move like stop-motion animation is what Haas and her collaborators did at the end of a day spent retrieving photos from one of the cameras. On one of these wildlife movie nights, one particular set of photos from a camera in Thaidene Nene picked up some real drama. And so this camera, it documented Arctic hare running by, it documented caribou going by, and then usually the same day or the next day, there'd be a pack of wolves that go by. So you've got this great story of the you know, predator-prey dynamics. And even on one of the shots of the wolves, you can see a little bit of blood on the side. Now, that's not all. There's more in this tale. As Haas and her colleagues continued to watch, they saw another visitor, a grizzly bear. And on the May 9th, you actually see the grizzly bear come towards the camera and just bend it. And so the first time the bear visited it, it bent it completely horizontally. Bent it. (laughs) The grizzly bear's thump to that camera was strong enough to bend the thick metal lodging into the tundra. But that wasn't the end of the story. The bear hadn't actually stopped the camera from functioning. Rather, it opened up a new world from another angle. So now the camera's on its side and it still took photos for about another month. And the next day after this grizzly bear was there, there's this wolverine walks right in front of the camera and it's on its side, the camera, but it's still taking these amazing, almost framed shots of wolverine. And then because of the angle, it actually takes pictures of white-fronted geese that fly overhead and then a little bird even kind of pops its head up, which normally we would have never captured. And then you see uh, a grizzly, probably the same grizzly, come by. Yeah, he came by, and apparently he's pretty camera shy because he finished off the job. Uh, You see kind of this brown fuzz just come back to the camera, and then the camera just gets pushed to the ground. The images are revealing the lives of animals like this tundra grizzly living their lives in a warming world. And while some observations have a little whimsy, Haas and her colleagues also have their eyes on bigger changes. Like animals from the boreal region, which divides the Arctic zone and southern Canada, making their way north to the treeless tundra, or vice versa. In the southwest of the Northwest Territories, by the BC and Alberta borders, you'll find Sambake First Nation, where more wildlife is being documented by remote cameras and audio recorders. Our next guest says the community has been on its own journey to protect its land. Hi, my name is Jessica Jumbo. I'm Sambake Gothine Decho Dene, born and raised in the NWT. I work as the environment and lands coordinator for the Sambake First Nations in my community, as long as uh, multiple other positions, such as the youth counselor for Sambake First Nation, the recycling depot operator, and the Trout Lake Lodge project manager. As you can hear, Jessica Jumbo is a busy woman and a leader in her community. Today we're talking about her work with the environment, the land, and youth. Jessica, hello. Hello. 
We're listening to this wonderful audio recording from a winter road in Sambake's territory. Jessica, when you hear this, where does it take you to in your mind? It takes me right back, I would have to say, to a specific spot, a pond on the side of the winter road where it's close, walkable distance, and you could probably just sit in total silence, probably on the crisp snow, the cool air, and just hearing these birds. It's wonderful to hear what we can't see in the winter or the summer because it's difficult to travel out there. So it just brings us right back to the land. It's wonderful to hear it in my headphones, too. (laughs) Let's paint a bit of a picture for our listeners of the area that you're gathering audio recordings in. Tell me what it looks like. So most of the surrounding area of Sambake around the community is a lot of bog and muskeg area. It's, it's hard to travel on, but there's such lack of anybody around that there's no noise pollution. There's no extra smells but Mother Earth herself when you're out there. I mean, it's these pure smells of earth and dirt and cleanliness and... Um, one of the funniest things we always say, the kids out here, one of their favorite smells is the muskeg that heats up on the engines of their quads after they get stuck. And that's one of the greatest memories these children have. From. <laughs> now, when you say quads, you mean those like skidoos? ATVs. Oh, ATVs. Oh, okay. Yeah, four-wheelers. Right. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> so you're putting these recorders in, in spots that are sometimes challenging to access. Can you describe what that adventure has looked like for the kids who are spending days at a time in the field? Um, The first year we did it, we had snow waist deep. So we had these kids trudging through snow and climbing over windrows and um, putting, holding their arms up and drilling these units into the trees and Um, One of the funny explanations was the snow was so high, they felt like one of those lizards that run on top of water and the way they have to throw their legs. Um, It was funny. And then last year, they they just went, as soon as they touched deep snow, they, they applied their traditional values or just our cultural skills. And they drove back to the community and they got a whack load of snowshoes and started just not even plowing through snow anymore. (laughs) Wow. It sounds like they're having a great time while they're doing the work. They do. They have an absolutely great time, and and they totally open up more when they're away from the electronics and away from the town, and they're just out there being kids and being goofy and, and throwing jokes into their work. And this is one of the greatest projects for the youth because it has a lot to do with traveling their own winter road. They're going um, large amounts of kilometers over their own territory and experiencing it and taking it in and seeing it. And not only um, did they ask us to deploy the units, they also, which wasn't done before, asked us if we would like to retrieve it. Because we can go down the winter road in most areas with an ATV and That was one of the funnest trips the kids did is being able to travel the winter road, which is only winter access, and then hit the highway and have accomplished their project. So this year when we deployed them again, 
I have nonstop youth asking me, when are we going out again? Can I be a part of this next one? And, which is great. It's really great to see. Yeah, it's not because it's not only just pure fun. It's also about them learning about their own environment, too. Yeah, their own environment. It also gives the community um, and this vision that the elders always solve, passing on the cultural knowledge and skills. Um, they, we get to incorporate um, how to safely travel on the land and, and not just carrying um, first aid kits and stuff, but just the traditional and cultural tips and skills that these harvesters have carried and mastered their whole lives, um, also being nomadic in the past. And they get to transfer these skills and knowledge to these kids, which gives the older people more confidence in sending their niece or nephew or like their own son or daughter out on the land to do something and by themselves. So. And you're not just working with the kids, you're also working with harvesters and elders. Why is it so important to bring so many members of the community into the research? So for me to run a project with the land, any project that has to do with anything to do with the land, I always look for their guidance on how to do it properly, how to incorporate some of the things that they would like to see and how they would like to see things done. So we use the elders' knowledge, and then we move to the harvesters, and they're the ones that travel the land physically and have traveled it for years, providing for their families, trapping, etc. So they have the skills the hands-on skills. And from the elders to the harvesters, they're the language holders. So then I come in the in-between as the worker helping Sambake First Nation create these projects. And then we bring the youth in. So then all of that is applied and being instilled into the youth's life. And then the elders feel comfortable that their vision to protect their area and live in this complementary manner with Mother Earth is being passed to the youth, which doesn't give them a lot of anxiety about how their area that they live so personally with is being taken care of. And you, you got your start in environment in a similar way when you were 15 years old. What's it like for you to pass it on to the, the next generation, to younger people? It's amazing. I try to really tell my story to them a lot. It's such a success story because um, I didn't think about it till now that I started so young and in everything I do, I apply what I've been taught by my elders and my harvesters. In a lot of the projects I run and the decisions that I make and where I'm trying to help the community carry its vision and how, so to see that I'm helping at one point where somebody helped me, it puts such a smile on my face because I can't wait till one of the youth get to my age and are doing interviews like this and running <laughs> projects like this. We'll have, to right. we'll have to book a date for, what, about 15, 20 years down the road and see how they're doing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I, I want as you as you're doing this work to protect a part of Sambake's First Nation. I'm wondering how the audio recordings and the photos are are helping you make the case for it. One of the biggest things for the community is we live from the land. 
she provides for us. So we do need to know what's happening to the species around us, how climate change is introducing new species, um, possibly eradicating some. That could be even a problem that we're creating. So um, keeping an eye and just, you know, being able to document species that are possibly at risk, that we need to um, have documentation and proof for that we need to protect. Just things like that, like um, finding a new species that could be rare, that's also something that helps us strengthen our case for this area needs to be protected. There's also some declines in frogs. You can, the auto recorders pick those up. Um, the the cameras work wonderful for us because our community doesn't believe in directly always monitoring caribou and stuff. They're a very sensitive species to our culture, and the cameras provide a way where we can see populations or if there's any movement in certain areas that they would frequent. So it helps us solidify the reasons why we're trying to protect this area. And it gives us that paper documentation and proof. Now, you mentioned frogs, you mentioned caribou. Are there other kinds of animals that are getting caught on camera and by the audio recordings? Yep, there's moose. Um, we This is our Samba Cave's first year putting the cameras out. So are there particular species that you're watching closely? Yes, right now we are watching the wild hog. The population was increasing and there was a very high chance that they would start coming over to the border into the NWT. So those two, the cameras could be placed near borders so it can give you an idea of if something's moved into the area or not. Now, protection can mean a lot of things. I'm wondering what your community, what does it want protection to look like? With the area, I do know some things have changed. Of course, like uh, before, we're absolutely no development, no anything. We just want it 100% protective. But as things move forward, um, for an example right now, the community would like to look at saving a little piece to do local local lumber, accessing a very small sawmill and only cutting enough lumber to supply locally, not commercially, not to anybody else, but to alleviate some costs because we are still a community, one of the very few communities that are isolated and still only have a winter road. So um, some of the vision has changed like that, not drastically, but I do know the old vision carried forward is that they did want all 100% of Sumbake land and waters protected. Um, Their most important focus was the animals, the waters, the, the trees. A lot of the discussions about the community is it's not pro-development. It's, it's not a lot of pro-commercial. We do a lot of stuff just to self-sustain this isn't the first time you've been involved in, in making a case for protection. Why do you hope this time will be different? Um, I hope this time will be different because the first time it slowed down and there was a lot of, um, bound, there was a boundary dispute. So I hope this gets done because it will it will alleviate 
my concern about what's going to be happening to the lands around here. You see so much development in the NWT, mines, oil and gas, um, that can be just so damaging. I'm hoping to be able to have areas protected so my children or my nieces and nephews have that control to say, to approve or not approve work coming into their community or to have conditions to those approvals. It's a huge thing to me because as a Dene person and gone through my personal struggles in my life, the land is where I felt most grounded and was able to sort things out. And if I see that gone in my community, it makes me worried for my own children. So if they don't have, don't have access to that, even that moment where we just listened to that recording unit and it literally brought me back to that pond, if they don't have that, where are those Indigenous children going to be at my age? I'm not sure that you've heard about this, Jessica, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced $800 million to be given to Indigenous-led conservation initiatives, including in the Northwest Territories. I'm wondering what your reaction is to that. I did not hear that. I've been caught up in the small dealings of my community and just keeping it running. I hadn't even had a chance. That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing news. It's amazing news, but it's also a lot of work too, right? (laughs) (laughs) As you well know. (laughs) Yeah, and especially for small communities, we're so undercapacitated and all of us, we all, anybody who lives in a small community, not just myself, when I named my occupations, I think there's like three or four of them, but everyone in a small community could relate. We all wear multiple hats. So when you're taking care of these projects and taking them on and these projects need full focus, I hope now it could be carried forward in a steady motion without delays and that it just gets done and it gets protected. Jessica Jumbo, I wish you good luck as you carry the work forward. Thank you so much for talking to me and for sharing those beautiful sounds. You're welcome so much. Thank you. Now, from a snowy road in the Northwest Territories, let's head back to that International Biodiversity Conference in downtown Montreal. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats as the event is about to begin. Now, I want to introduce you to two more people who have come to share their messages. My name is Laura George. I'm from Guyana in South America. I'm an Indigenous rights activist. I work with the Amerindian Peoples Association as governance and rights coordinator. For the last year, many communities throughout Guyana experienced severe flooding and it has impacted our food security. As Indigenous peoples, our staple is the cassava. You know, people around the world may call it the yucca. So that cassava, the farming cycle has been disrupted, meaning that the outcome of harvesting is very, very compromised right now. Laura George has come to Montreal with other Indigenous leaders from around the world. They want their peoples to be treated as partners in conserving what's left of global biodiversity. The imbalance that I find at these conferences is that globally we spend a lot of money, we emit a lot of emissions to get to conferences where there is no guarantee. You know, member states display this deep hesitation 
to make genuine commitments to saving the earth, reduce emissions. And indigenous peoples are trying to grapple to be heard. You know, we have working groups, we have indigenous peoples caucuses, but in the end, it's always the member states that have the upper hand of deciding what gets into the final outcomes. We have very uh, heavy issues of rights of indigenous peoples being respected. And, and I'm saying this because the reason that the forests are standing in Guyana is because they lie on lands of indigenous peoples. Now, despite the imbalance she sees, Laura George says it's important for indigenous groups like hers to show up at these kinds of international meetings. I think we learn from each other and we support each other and we return to our countries with renewed convictions that, okay, it is not us alone. But it's also an opportunity to meet with member states, to talk with them on why some language are important to support in the negotiations. Success for me would be to have a framework that is approved to protect our biodiversity, to reduce emissions, to ensure that Indigenous people's rights are, I wouldn't say considered, because that seems to be the language that is always there. It's an easy way out for the parties, but commitments to protect biodiversity that not only Indigenous peoples, but all humanity have healthy ecosystems. It might be difficult for rich nations to fully understand it's not just for my country like Guyana, it's our efforts to protect the world. And indigenous peoples need to be heard. Biodiversity throughout the world, all humanity depends on it. All of humanity depends on biodiversity. It's a huge, maybe daunting idea. Now, I want to introduce you to someone who's bringing that message to the Montreal Conference in a very personal, even playful way. Hi, I'm Kyle Babiwash. I'm Anishinaabe, a member of Misagi First Nation, and I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology and an Indigenous scholar in the Faculty of Agricultural and Food Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Kyle Babiwash loves bees, and with some bee species on the decline in Canada, He says the key to helping humans truly understand what bees are going through is storytelling. One of the things we naturally go to is to say, oh, bees are important for one in every three bites, or bees pollinate up to 80 to 90% of flowers globally. Um, Yes, that's all important, but again, that's very human-centric. What I like to think about is, you know, think about your own life in terms of You like to eat a diversity of food. You don't like to eat the same meal every week. So you can imagine as we start to homogenize and simplify the landscape, we're making the diet, the life of a bee, that much more boring. So you can hear how Kyle Bobbywash really puts himself inside the mind of the bee. And he's giving a talk in Montreal about how scientists can tell stories that help others do the same. And he's not just injecting passion and enthusiasm into his stories. A little bit of his own cultural background creeps in there too. You know, in Anishinaabe culture, we have these concepts like Minobematsuin, uh, which are, you know, living the good life. And how can we conceive or how can we think of a bee living a good life in a really static, homogenized, simplified environment? Right? If there's only two or three flowers for that bee to um, visit, and, you know, those flowers are not super abundant, that's a struggle for that particular bee. 
So, you know, relating of those needs of both people with the needs of insects and trying to get people to understand that these organisms also deserve a good life, I think, is a way potentially to allow us to think about what is our responsibilities towards all these species out in the environment and what do we need to do to make sure that we're allowing them themselves to uh, lead a good life. He says scientists need to make a compelling argument for protecting biodiversity. And we can only do that by really extolling the virtues, telling about the scary things, telling about the exciting things, and telling everybody else about all those really sweet, cute things uh, that you might see in the environment, in our landscapes. Hmm, these sweet, cute things. I'm trying to think about them myself, although... I do wonder at the natural marvels they pull off just by living their lives. So I think he's on to something about this, about telling stories about animals. I mean, we all do it with our domesticated animals like dogs and cats. They're almost like little humans to us. So I can see the point of what he's doing. And hey, we're all about storytelling too. So uh, if any of you out there have any uh, great storytelling ideas about wildlife, let us know. You can email us at earth at cbc.ca. Now, something happened in the last few days that I wanted to make sure I noted. The federal government made good on a promise announced just over a year ago, but it did so kind of at the last minute. As of January the 1st, Ottawa will halt funding for new fossil fuel projects and investments abroad. Last year in Glasgow, Canada joined 38 other nations in making the pledge and taking action by the end of this year. Now, advocacy groups are welcoming the move in spite of some loopholes. Projects could still gain financial support for national security or as part of a humanitarian or emergency response, perhaps a nod to the effects of the war in Ukraine. There's also an exception for natural gas power projects, as long as they replace a higher-emitting form of fuel. And finally, if a project includes a way to capture emissions, it may also win support. But what about all the domestic subsidies for fossil fuel? The government has been promising to eliminate what it calls inefficient subsidies by next year. But there are few details on that front. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, and you can also subscribe to our podcast there and hear the best of what's on offer from CBC Radio. And we also want to hear from you because the holiday season is upon us. Are you doing anything special over the next few weeks with the climate in mind? Maybe you're having a thriftmas this year with all secondhand presents changing your travel or meal plans to cut back on carbon and by doing so cut back on costs. Let us know. Our email is earth at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage. And that's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Kiernan Green. 
producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. Thanks this week to the CBC's Alice Hopton and Jayla Bernstein. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.